Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Jocelyn Alcott. She's an associate professor of history and gender, sexuality and feminist studies at Duke University. It's actually the second time she's been on the podcast. The first time we discussed her book, International Women's Year, the greatest consciousness-raising event history, which considers the history and legacies of the United Nations First World Conference on Women in 1975 in Mexico City. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, I'd highly recommend checking it out. In this podcast, we talk about the current sexual harassment epidemic and the response from some who are considering it sex panic and McCarthyism. How do we take seriously and deal with sexual misconduct, harassment, and abuse on the one hand without demonizing sexual desire on the other? That's the conversation Jocelyn and I took a stab at having. In just a moment, you'll hear that conversation. But first, I want to ask you a question. Do you feel stressed at the holiday season? One more thing to do. One more party to go to. One more consumer purchase. You feel like you've got to make. Maybe for that favorite child in your life, a son, daughter, niece, nephew, some toy that you know is made somewhere oppressively in the world and you're just tired out. You want to start your day right. I can tell you where to start. Start with effective coffee. For effective coffee, the good life is enjoying great coffee, contributing to exceptional charities, and activating the power of teamwork. This coffee is fresh from origin. Today, my wife and I had the Honduras Corqueen beans, and they were fabulous. Their first move is to source the coffee at a price that's equitable for farmers first. Then they roast it carefully and ship it right to you right away. It's fresh and as fresh as it gets. As this coffee is waking you up on your Monday mornings, let me tell you what Effective Coffee is doing on their Monday mornings. They start every week donating 5% of their revenue. And then for every bag they ship in a week, they increase that rate. Their goal is to donate 20% of their revenues a week to best practice charities that actually improve the lives of the people in the regions that farm their coffee. So as you're running around the holidays thinking, gosh, man, I, I feel I'm being run ragged. What am I doing? Am I making an impact? You can actually make an impact starting your day by drinking this delicious coffee. Go to EffectiveCoffee.com. Use the coupon code give and take, and you'll get 10% off, not for one bag or two bags or a month, but for your entire lifetime subscription. What are you waiting for? And now on to my conversation with Jocelyn Alka. Jocelyn, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So it's a pleasure. You're a great person to talk with. And it was funny because you, you, I messaged you if you'd, like to want to, if you'd like to come on and talk about stuff. And you said, well, what you're working on is a little obscure, but can I just quote you here what you sent me that, <laughs> to start our conversation? Uh, you said that, that you are, that the, the non-academic issue that's currently occupying too much headspace for you is this response from the left characterizing the sexual harassment accusations as a sex panic. It's this weird conflation of sexual harassment with sexual desire. Anyway, I'm not really an expert, but it seems pretty whack. <laughs> <laughs> so could, i stand by all of that <laughs> yeah i love the edit it seems true could you say why that is pretty whack <laughs> let's start there so it's interesting i mean I, I don't know how much of this stuff you've been been following um there's been a lot of stuff you know several columns in the new yorker and the new york times and there was a piece recently i actually for a while was wondering if maybe this is just a super parochial New York fixation because there was Woody Allen's thing about it being a witch hunt and Susan Sarandon kind of dismissing it all as like overreaction. And there was a, a piece in a, a kind of small lefty publication called Counterpunch by a guy, it's, which is a California publication, but the author was from New York that, that referred to this all as a sex panic. And, um, I was curious what that was about and that most often, and I think you see this with the Woody Allen stuff and also with a couple of these other columns, I think some of Masha Gessen's stuff in the New Yorker, um, often likens the, these accusations to McCarthyism, right? And this idea that, um, innocent people or unsuspecting people are getting swept up in this, in this craze, um, in which, 
they have no idea that what they're doing is is offensive or that there's some kind of like irrational fear that's driving this. Um, and so what's interesting, there's there's a, a couple of strains of this that I see kind of proliferating in the both on social media and I think on kind of more conventional media. Um, one of them is this is this argument that um, you know desire should be free, and this is just a bunch of frigid feminists trying to constrain what's truly beautiful in life, which is love, right? Which is so. Let's put that to the side and come back to it later. <laughs> um, that idea, and um, and then the other is this. I think this idea that um, this is something that people are using, perhaps with ulterior motives. I think that came up a lot, a lot around the the Tweeden accusations against Al Franken. I mean, I think notably the time when this really exploded was after the Al Franken and Louis C.K. Um, accusations surfaced. And I think that um, that's not surprising. Um, it, it seems to me that a lot of people who are articulating this sex panic idea um, are concerned that, you know, people are just getting, you know, like I said, kind of swept up. And I, I, um, I appreciate that. I think that part of what is going to happen if this movement, you know, is taken seriously is that we'll have to be really careful about those issues. It seems so far that the cases that we're talking about, the allegations that we're talking about are not, um, in, in certainly Louis CK's case, he's, he's, you know, admitted to doing what he's, you know, alleged to have done and, um, and seems to concerned himself about it. Um, Al Franken's is more complicated, of course. <laughs> the funny thing about the Louis CK thing is like uh, somebody, uh, an author I know, Shavisa Woods posted on Facebook. Well, there's only X number of women mentioned in this, but why aren't the, these X other women? Because when you pull, when you engage in this sort of autoeroticism, when so unsolicited, the fact that they said, no, thank you, doesn't mean you didn't violate their <laughs> consent, right? <laughs> like, like right. oh, well, you just kind of get, 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 in, get going with it. And if the person says, no, thank you, well, no harm, no foul. That's still, yeah. a, foul, that's that's still, still a violation of really consent. Offensive. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that what's interesting here is that, you know, so a lot of the things that, um, people are bringing up now are issues that are already like these are are either laws or norms that are already on the books right so we have you know dating from the 1970s you have this kind of quid pro quo like what what's what's a ban on what's considered quid pro quo sexual harassment right so um i can't tell you that i'm going to advance your career if you you know give me some sexual favor that i want and they can't even be implied right so so we already have that and then that broadens really in the 1980s and 90s into a kind of more general idea that you can't have a hostile environment or environment in which there are expectations. And that broadens out there from, I think, being just about sex and sexuality to being about race and ethnicity and, and other things, right? So so there's a kind of broadening. And I, I think that some of the unease comes with, okay, well, where do we draw the lines? And and there are cases that are maybe less interesting that to think about, like cases where uh, there's explicitly rape or explicitly a quid pro quo or explicitly, you know, I, someone gets a, a bad job evaluation or a crappy work schedule or is denied a raise because they refuse to do something for their manager. But then there's this much broader area. And um, I think that's where people get uneasy. I think they get uneasy maybe in part because they're not sure where they're going to end up yeah. falling. Michelle Obama was Barack Obama's supervisor when they met. Right. And, and yeah, yeah, somebody, Emily Bazelon, I think, on the Slate Political Gab Fest was like, well, are we going to get to the point where consenting adults that work together can't have sex? <laughs> it was such a, it was such a funny way to frame it. But yeah. you, but I, I feel, you feel the tension, you know, I mean, yeah, because yeah, there's a complicated, these, the power dynamics are complicated. Right. It's funny. There's a, there's a, um, I have two friends, um, and call, I mean, I, I, I call them friends. I really like them. I hope they call me a friend as well. So, um, but they're colleagues, they're fellow historians and, um, they first met, and I should say they're incredibly accomplished. So they're the kind of historians who write, you know, prize-winning books that not only reshape the way we think as historians, but they make us rewrite high school history textbooks. I mean, really, really good stuff, right? 
Uh, but they met when she was an undergraduate and he was her teacher and, and was her, then her, un, her honors thesis advisor. And I kind of forget that usually because I, m- by the time I met them, they were a, a long established couple. And, um, you know, and honestly, they're the kind of couple when you meet them, you think the world would be a, a better place if everybody had a relationship like this one, right? They're a very lo- loving, mutually respectful, respecting couple. I mean, you know, just everything you would want, right? Um, but I, I, you know, I've kind of been going back to that and thinking, so is it a problem then that we now have these categorical guidelines and rules that say teachers can't have relationships with their students and, and, you know, bosses can't have a relationship with somebody that reports to them. And and if somebody moves to reporting under you or, or vice versa, that relationship would have to end, like you'd have to choose between one or the other. And I, so I've been kind of kicking around my head, like, is is there an alter, a reasonable alternative to this that doesn't just get us back to the free-for-all, where it's an arbitrary decision on a case-by-case basis that ultimately yeah. devolves to power? Yeah, I've seen uh, clergy people brought up on abuse charges mm-hmm. because they, they were they were single and they mm-hmm. and they dated a staff member or a or a congregant right and they were single and the, but, but everybody was single and and but the, the, consenting the, right and consenting and it was is looked at like like a, a, and they put it in this sort of like in, in the post catholic church sort of child abuse it's all this is abuse and you're like really i mean like is is that i mean i like full disclosure i met my wife we were dating when i was a part time doing as a teaching pastor at this congregation and it was a pretty like mm-hmm. uh it was a very kind of hipster sort of uh, informal kind of community, right? It wasn't a very like, so, so, the, so the leadership roles weren't looked at as traditionally as invested with it. But a lot of people would say that's, that can no way ever be a, um, a real relationship that is with integrity because of power dynamics and they're a congregant and, 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 and you're, right. and, and you know, we were both single consenting adults and we wound up dating and getting married. <laughs> like, but these are, these are the hard <laughs> questions, right? Like, well, I think, I mean, first of all, listen, we have to start from the recognition that every relationship, certainly any relationship I can think of, my guess is that pretty much every relationship crosses some divide of power. Right, like right. Somebody earns more money. Somebody has has my, racial my, privilege. My wife makes know. a lot more money than me. She's a nurse practitioner. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, right? And so, so you know, I think the part of what makes this a really thorny and interesting question is you're never going to be able to disentangle questions of power and desire and sex, right? They're just always going to be bound up. And I think then the question is, you know, to me, the the response then to all of these reports of sexual harassment, which are not, I realize that for some people, you know, or at least to the critics, it seems like it's just this the kind of hot new thing. It's not the hot new thing. It's that there's finally an environment in which people feel safe coming forward. I, I think that part of it may have been that the election of Donald Trump was a little bit of like, it just, you know, it just seems like it's beyond the pale. And, um, and that somebody who could openly boast about, about that kind of behavior would then go on to be elected with some people applauding it, you know, was just, was just too much. So, I will say this, I, you know, I've been kind of thinking about what are these different frameworks for like analogies or whatever you want to say for thinking about it. One of them is this McCarthy one. I think the other one that people talked about is the debates, the campus debates about academic freedom versus creating a welcoming environment for, for diverse learning populations. The, the one that I keep coming back to as the one that I find inspiring and maybe useful to use is the model of the civil rights movement. And I say that not only because I think that you reach a sort of historical tipping point where, you know, things really start to change and there's momentum, but I think also because its leadership had a real analysis of the ways in which seemingly tiny slights, like calling a a grown man boy or feeling like, you know, a woman's body was was available both sexually and otherwise to you, um, to, to... to the whole kind of array of things about, you know, civil, more, you know, voting rights and employment rights and access to education and on through to, you know, both sanctioned and, and vigilante violence, right? And that these would all be seen as being kind of of a piece. And I, I think that that's what, when we think about this whole emerging movement around sexual harassment, and I, I should say, I think one of the things that's really exciting about it is I think it's in a lot of ways really animated by younger women, younger activists. Activists who are 
Um, and I should say not just women. I think this actually, I think the, I think the generational divide on this is more important than the, than the sex divide, frankly. But, but so younger activists who are basically kind of sex positive and anti-abuse, right? And they want to find ways to navigate this. And I, I think it's a really important conversation to have that shouldn't be shut down because people are concerned that Louis CK maybe lost his, his, you know, job prematurely. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, yeah, I, I think you're right on there. And I think it's, it's, one of the things uh, our culture surprisingly doesn't do very well is nuance, right? <laughs> so, and that part, I, I think part of this is just this, right? Learning how to have nuance. That, that, that Al Franken is different than Roy Moore, is different than Louis C.K., yeah. that all these situations are different. Um, and, and that you can, yeah, that you can have a sex positive, you know, ethic and, and have, and take abuse seriously. Um, right. and yet, want, and want to have a space where people can be adults with appropriate boundaries and yet, and yet free, have room for free expression. I mean, all these things, these things are all probably negotiable, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the question is, can you negotiate them? I mean, again, I keep going back to the, is there a way, so we have basically categorical, we have a statutory rape laws. We have categorical rules about employment relationships. Most educational facilities have something that's based on EEOC laws, which is again, categorical. Like you can't, uh, so at my university, you can't have a relationship with an undergraduate at all, completely off the table. And you can't have a relationship with a graduate student. So clearly a fully consenting adult. Um, if in any way you have, you're, you are on their dissertation or otherwise, you know, master's committee or they in any way report to you or if they're in your classes, right? So it's this interesting question about is there any way to get away from thinking categorically um, and still have these protections in place? I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I don't, I'm not seeing it. Like, I don't, I, I think that if you're going to have protections that say, a person who's deciding your 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 livelihood can't you know needs to be clear eyed. <laughs> Thinking with I mean I I don't I, I don't know but I, I that's the the conversation I would be interested in having is how do you is there an alternative to that categorical thinking that gets us to something um, maybe more human. Um, but still protects against what are clear. I mean, these aren't imaginary. I, I will say the one thing that I think this movement has done effectively and, and that people are still resisting is that it, it has shifted our perspective to say, let's start from the position that we believe the allegations rather than starting from the position that we, and, and again, like if there's going to be a, a, a legal process, of course you have innocent until proven guilty, but, but to start rather than, you know, and I, I really, I think the case where this really struck me the most is this Leanne Tweeden accusation against, um, Al Franken, I, you know, who I, I don't know. And I'm guessing you don't know what happened during the, the notorious kiss between, you know. Oh, right, right, right. So, so we can, but if we start from the position of rather saying we can't believe her because she's a talking head for Fox News or she's French with Roger Stone or because she once modeled scantily clad or because when she was actually participating in the USO performance, she, you know, was like doing raunchy, performing raunchy behavior. And so therefore nothing else she does can be believed. I think that that's, that's a regression from what this movement is accomplishing of saying, let's start from a position of taking these allegations seriously and investigate. And I, I think that that hopefully we can hold on to at least that. Yeah. And I was shocked by that when it came out with the house, how the house of representatives works. I mean, mm -hmm. gosh, if you want to be someone, a guy, a, a guy behaving badly, that's the yeah. place to be. I mean, right. Cause <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, it's institutionalized. It's like if somebody accused you, they've got to go to counseling. They've right. got to pay for their own lawyer. Then you get a government lawyer. And if, if they get a settlement, the treasury department pays for it and they have to right. sign a non-disclosure agreement. I'm like, this is, What's the incentive not to do it if you're a pervy guy? Like, it's like, it's incentivizing the behavior. Like, what do you have to lose? I mean, really, what do you have to lose? You do wonder if Congress is like this halfway house for sex offenders, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's, it's something you're just like, Oh my gosh. Wow. How would this, how would this framework at all prevent, right? Rather than encourage the behavior. I mean, yeah. The other thing too, I think is, you know, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, right? So I think about Luther a lot of late. And, you know, one of Luther's insights is that the law, laws are 
powerless to change like like you can make a law against stealing right and that might stop somebody from stealing from you but it it can't do anything about the avariciousness or entitlement that would like you can't like so this is the part of the thing that, that, that this kind of lutheran idea that the law is powerless to uh to give what it demands like if if, if the right. summary of the biblical laws to love uh, the creator and, and all that's been created that only in becoming the beloved and you know you receive love does love pour back out right and so intention right. you know this is one of the things right like so some of the stuff around harassment like if somebody's harass <laughs> somebody's intentions are bad <laughs> um, right. policies may may, th- may give them pause because of the fear of ruining their life or being penalized unless you're in the house of representatives <laughs> then it seems <laughs> that, then those laws good. don't seem to do that at all but 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 <laughs> but if if it can't those things can't work on intention and, and that is where as a culture we have to talk about like well how do we intention to be uh respectful honorable right. um uh, and yeah. mature and respect you know and, and that and now given that there's still going to be confusing things that will happen i mean people get but but it, i think all we can do is i mean for the health of culture is i mean there's a limit to what regulations can do right because cultural Absolutely. cultural transformation has to happen and right. what you're talking about, there has to be this, you know, holding intention, the the yeah. uh, the awareness of abuse and, and sex positivity somehow, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting is that you know these laws have been on the book for decades now, and I think part of what's happening is that structurally things have been catching up. That is to say, more people who formerly might have been the targets of of abuse and harassment now are in positions that they don't have to put up with that anymore, right? Um, for all, all kinds of reasons. And then, and I think things are culturally kind of catching up a bit. Like I really do feel like we're at a, a moment now where things could open up and we could have a meaningful conversation about this, which I have to say, which is why the sex panic discourse concerns me. Cause that seems like a discourse that shuts down the discussion rather than opens it up to all of the complexity and difficulty of it, you know, and I, and all of the things that, I mean, every, every encounter like this, and I mean, certainly romantic and sexual encounters above all, but really every personal encounter is an opportunity for confusion and miscommunication and misunderstanding and, and so forth. And I think that part of what we could see happen is something where just much more conversation is happening so that misunderstandings are cleared up. And it's very clear that if, you know, your congregant comes on to you and you're not interested, that gets shut down, right? That's or whatever, you know, that it's not, um, or vice versa, right? So that that whatever the power divides, the inevitable power divides may be, that there's a, a clear mechanism and understanding that if if the desire is not reciprocated, that's the end of it, right? You right, don't get right. to then impose the desire. Yeah, and, and things that are interesting tr- tricky too in, in things like in the congregational example, like let's say it's a, a female in a you know, in a in a church that where she she's an elder mm-hmm. and comes on to the pastor, a pastor who is single. Well, who's the power? Because they're kind right. of your employer. I mean, these are these right. are these are all so like like, and yeah. I, that's just one example I can think of because of congregational life experience. But like, how many other places in the culture are these are the, are the power differentials so confusing? Like yes. like, uh, who right. has because both have different kinds of power and things like that. Yeah, I think it's and I think you see this in in colleges and universities as well in the sense that, you know, on the one hand, faculty are seen, I think, conventionally as having power over students. But, you know, universities are very responsive to students at this point. And if a student comes forward with a complaint, then universities understandably have to think about how to address that that concern. And so the power dynamics are are not are never as clear cut as as we might imagine them to be, you know. Did you see recently now Donald Trump is denying the Access Hollywood tape even happened. I know. I think that's weird. Well, then, I, if the, now if that's the case, Billy Bush gets to come out of exile. If that, if, if you're, right. but that's what's interesting. And Billy Bush behaved badly. Uh, but but it's funny because my friend Mark Oppenheimer uh, uh-huh. said said that you know he, we were talking once. He said you know I feel like I imagine I could laugh awkwardly at something badly being said because I have such a need to be liked sometimes. And I mean Billy yeah. Bush seemed a little more than that. But but here's a guy. Donald Trump gets to go be president, and Billy Bush is exiled from public life. You know I mean, like, like, I, I, like, can he get a radio show in Ottawa or something? I mean, he has to, you know, like, this is what's what's interesting, right? Like, Trump, 
and, and, and is it I mean, it's part of the age of Trump, too. The irony is it's like, you know, for years we hear like the left is the, you know, postmodernity and cultural relativism and all this stuff and, and perspectivalism. Now it seems like the left yeah. is, is standing up for objectivity and the right are the kind of, you know, you have Kelly and Kelly. Well, I've got inter- yeah. alternative facts. And Chuck Todd right. says, no, that's right. a falsehood, an alternative fact. Right. Like, right. It's, a, it's a weird shifting of the of of, of yeah. the sands, no, right? I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Crest, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, you know, one of the things that's interesting in the Billy Bush question, really, in all of these, these cases, is the role of media. Um, both, I think, conventional media and social media. The conventional media is interesting for a couple of reasons. One of them, I think, is that, um, you know, sex still sells, right? And so there's a kind of way in which this stuff is dominating the news cycle because it's the most retweeted, reshared, you know, um, it's, there's a kind of prurience about it to be sure. I think there's a kind of schadenfreude about it. But the other thing is that, and I think this is what happened with something like the the certainly the Matt Lauer case um, and and the Billy Bush case is that you know these executives of media outlets read their demo, their market demographics and think we don't want somebody as our spokesperson that is offensive to a major part of our demographic like we're going to be losing advertising right so this whole constellation of of I think commercial interest gets caught up in it, which I, which is, I think a, an interesting conversation. And then there's the fact that any of this stuff gets, you know, can, can kind of catch fire on social media and get repackaged and repurposed in all kinds of ways. So it's a, I think that the landscape this stuff is playing out in is also exceedingly, exceedingly complicated. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny that, that you say that because was, I was listening to an interview with Howard Stern and, John Stewart recently, this couple weeks ago, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It was just so good. And but Stewart you can was imagine. oh, it's just amazing. But Stewart had this line where he said, "Look, everybody, no matter how woke you are, everyone go- falls asleep, and we're yeah. not going to claw our way out." Like right. this kind of and a, a friend, uh, uh, she tweeted like, "Is this? This seems like excuse making for Louis C.K." I, I, I tweeted back, "No, it's not." It, the context of it was actually it was Stewart being self critical. Saying he remembers Jezebel, he's like something Jezebel said. Oh, the writing, the Daily Show's an old boys' club, you know. It's and he said, I walked in with this magazine into the writers' room. Can you guys believe this? You three white bearded guys who all went to Harvard, can you? It's not. And he's like, because <laughs> what I was thinking of at first is we hire based on blind submission, right? So right. their age, the talent age in the go, they don't know the gender. They don't know their, but because right. the network, the guy yeah. gets networked with these people. And so Stuart's like, so as a guy who thinks of himself as pretty critically aware, like I, I, I there was all these blind spots I didn't see in my own organizational culture. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, I, I think that that's uh, having the humility an awareness to see those things, right? To see, yeah. to see where th- those dynamics are and not be defensive about it. Like, right. the, the, that's the, really hard. <laughs> yeah. Because you know, nobody wants to, this is it's funny because there's this, um, there's this piece. It was in, it was Andrew, um, not, oh gosh, it was a guy who used to edit the New Republic, but he wrote this Orthodox Jewish kind of scholar, young guy, Andrew, um, mm-hmm. 
I can't think of it. But he wrote it, 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 it appeared in the New Yorker, the or something. He said, Republicans not a term for racist. And he was <laughs> saying, look, what liberal, he's a guy of the left, and he was saying, you know, we have to watch how we use terms. And he said, you know, like, because while Republicans, conservatives have more electoral power right now, liberals still have more power in the cultural elite circles. And so to call someone a racist or a sexist mm-hmm. is, is pretty, especially like he was talking about, one of the examples he thought was absurd is they, they called um, a piece in Breitbart that was written by David, um, Horowitz or whatever, who's, who's a Jew. It was about right. Bill Crystal. It was called Renegade Jew. Mm-hmm. And basically it was, uh-huh. it was one Jewish guy accusing another one of being betraying Israel because he wouldn't support Trump because Crystal was never a Trumper. And, and then somebody right. said, this is anti-Semitic. He's like, you can't be anti-Semitic if it's one Jew writing to a Jew. No, it can right. be stupid. <laughs> it can be absurd. Right. You can say, but like yeah. the, the, these kind of, so I wonder like if we could dial down um, language because one of the points he makes in this piece is that conservatives tend to view discrimination or bigotry in terms of intent where liberals mm-hmm. view it in outcome. Mm-hmm. So if I vote to cut, not to expand the Medicaid because I don't think the Jewish Georgia budget can take it, and I disproportionately affect African Americans. I wasn't being racist because I wasn't trying. I was trying to balance the budget. Whereas the left would say, systemically here, you, you, you got to look at some more things. Right. And he was right. just saying that we got have to have, even if we can't have a reproachment on the intent versus outcome thing, that mm-hmm. that that trying to be um, trying to have a little more nuance and generosity. So that because when you do this kind of public shaming, then people get more defensive. Like yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not willing to look at systemic distri- dis- uh, discrimination or because I don't want to be, you know, I'm not a, ra- you, you, you go out of your way to say I'm not racist, I'm not sexist, right. I mean, this is, again, where I think rather than going with the panic model, if we could go with the opening up conversation model, yeah. it might be might be more productive, which is to say, look, it's not um, – it is I, – I can tell you from both experience and from observation that it is in fact the case that many people in many workplaces and educational settings experience the kind of both low-grade and high-grade um, – humiliations and degradations that uh, that that have come up with this whole me too campaign and with the the kinds of allegations that are being made and that and that they really are of a piece and i i think that part of what's happening is a sort of raising of consciousness to use a good 1970s term right a sort of conscious raising about what the effects of this behavior are and if we if we do this well i i mean I agree with John Stewart. Unsurprisingly, that like we're not we're not going to be able to be woke all the time, right? But if 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 part of what an after effect of this is is that people are simply more cognizant of the ways that their behavior, the effects of their behavior, are having, and the ways in which, I mean, I, one of the things that has really struck me about the a lot of the people propagating the sex panic discourse is that they seem really not to understand how humiliating it is to have someone talk to you in that way or treat you in that way. And it, um, I, I don't understand. I mean, I, I, I don't understand how you can be a person who's never experienced that. Cause I think that I, I just imagine that everybody at some time in their life has at some, at some point, but I, I've just been struck that maybe there are people who really have, who really don't know what that kind of really deeply burning, angry, disoriented feeling that you get at that moment. Um, yeah, I think yeah, yeah, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I just, I, I, I guess I think the other thing that has really struck me is that um, a common discourse around these cases is that people seem not to believe women who are coming forward now as if um, I feel like we get, you know, exhibits, you know, ABC and D every single day we get exhibits of why women are reluctant to come forward. But it's also it, it, and you see this, I think, also with the kind of gen, you know, some like someone like Susan Sarandon saying, you know, I think women should think it's flattering that Harvey Weinstein comes onto them, right? I mean, that I, I think that um, part of what is really striking is that there's, there's been a major generational shift from people of my mother's or my grandmother's generation who would have said, look, you should just kind of find ways to navigate this, and you should, you should consider it flattering that if somebody thinks you're, you're attractive or whatever. And not not take offense, and and there's really been a shift on that. I, to my mind, for the good of people saying no, this isn't this isn't appropriate for this setting, for this workplace setting, this educational setting, whatever. Like this, just I and I'm not interested, in, right? And so I and ways to kind of draw those boundaries more. Yeah, it's really interesting because I was saying my wife and I were having dinner last night. I was reflecting on two experiences. One time, this is before we were dating, and she was out with some friends, and I walked up to the bar and her friend who's a pretty flirtatious woman turned around and grabbed my chest and said, Oh, pecs or something like that. And I, I was so, I, 
I remember my reaction. I was like, I, whoa. <laughs> I, I was like, what would give you the sense that that would be invited behavior? And I was very detached like that. But I was like, no, in your head, tell me what you think. Normally, would guys, is this a flirtation? And she's like, and she was kind of trying to laugh it off. And I, and I was just, I was so, I thought it was yeah. super curious. And another time, uh, this actually, I think, was after we were married. Uh, there were a bunch of nurses or something and there was a bar and I, I, I was the cleaner of the bar and somebody like smacked my posterior. You know, like, and, whoa. and I was like, wow, whoa. I mean, I was kind of like, and I kind of, I, I was, it was so strange. Like it was, and I was like, and I kind of laughed, but like, so, uh, well, I was like, yeah, do you think, do you know if you're a woman, how you, how many times you've done, you can't even catalog it. Um, yeah. and it is different. Interesting how like I probably didn't, I don't think as, because I'm a guy, I probably didn't feel violated like a woman would in either instance. I mean, the one was just peculiar. I was like, wait, the, the other one was like, ah, okay, this is, you know, somebody's um a, a little intoxicated and there's probably thinks this is int- fun or playful and so not trying to come on to me or something. But, um, but, it, but as a man, it's the processing of that. Yeah. It's, re- it's funny because I'm reading this book right now that my wife actually recommended. She said it's fantastic. It's called The Power by Naomi Alderman. Have you heard of this book? It's uh, no, I haven't. So basically the idea is like in the near future, it's like an X-Men kind of thing. And women, a percentage of women, uh, it's like a, hand, a small percentage of women or like a, like a slither of the population and some gender fluid guys like uh-huh. are, um, get this electromagnetic kind of power. And they can manipulate things and they can, and, and then all this overnight, the women become the power group and start behaving really badly. Like, and, and her kind of, her, wow. her theory is that it's not the gender, it's the power. If yeah. one group has just disproportionately because of physical power or because of a class and just like a stat, like the, the justice system, the weapons, everything that they're just going to behave. And there's this one scene where this woman is debating a kind of braggadocio male candidate for governor or something and she's got the she's one of the people with the power and he's being such a jerk and she finally just goes and shocks him and knocks him out and people can't believe she did it then everybody votes for her and they, they right. celebrate the you know it's like the Donald Trump thing oh you being and then people vote for him you know and so it's a right. very nuanced interesting arg- sci-fi kind of argument about you got to look beyond the gender it's the power because guys have been physically more p- powerful and that changes the modernity a little bit but there's, but these things that you behave badly when power is so disproportionate in one group over another it's yeah. just almost inevitable that that it will happen i mean not individuals but like there's a systemic drift that, that yeah to entitlement on on bad behavior right and i, I mean i listen i don't think that we're gonna eliminate power from the world so we, we should figure out a way to, to <laughs> work within it yeah. um but but there's no question that part of what the, the the shift that we're seeing right now is a shift because people that used to not have much power now have more power right um and and have the power to kind of call other people out and not feel like their livelihoods are at stake or that or that if their livelihoods are at stake they can rebuild in some way and it's um but you know the the truth of it and part of i, I think part of my frustration with this is that it's often reduced to, you know, this is a few sort of Hollywood elites, you know, going after Harvey Weinstein or it's, you know, privilege. It's often reduced to this as if it's only privileged white women. And it's none of those things. It's not just women, certainly. It's definitely not just white women. And it's not just privileged women. I think that privileged women, if, if you want to say like people with a kind of class privilege or, or class has probably find it a little bit easier to speak out. I mean, listen, I'm a tenured professor. Like I can speak out because I have a, you know, I have job security. I think that if you are a, a some, you know, a waitress and somebody like a customer is like grabbing your rear end or a manager is, you know, kind of backing you into a corner, you have many fewer options if that's the job that you have and you need. Right. Right. And right, so, right. And because you're not because it's not Harvey Weinstein and you're not an actress, the sh- social shaming power and all that kind of the kind of like, what are the odds that I think the odds that it gets taken seriously, sadly, probably diminish because it's not a right. high, it's not in the public eye. Right. I mean, you'd have to more likely to make it effective. You'd have to make it some kind of class. Right. You'd have to say, like, all of these people who are employees at McDonald's or whatever are filing a class action because they filed these complaints against their managers and McDonald's isn't paying attention or whatever. I mean, I so 
Um, disclaimer, that's not a real story. <laughs> McDonald's not guilty of anything, <laughs> but, but it would, it would have to be probably something more, um, along those lines to really get traction. So I, rather than seeing it as a, as a failing of this movement, that it's really the high profile cases that are getting the attention, which is, that's, that's the way that people's attention works. That's the way the media works and whatever. But rather seeing that as something that's kind of opening again, like the civil rights movement, you have these moments that kind of create openings that we can push open. And I, I, and, and I think that's what's happening now. And and there's so many great lessons from the civil rights movement that I, I think we should use them, you know, use that history. The last time we talked, we talked a little about your book, which is fantastic, about International Women's Year. But uh, oh, I was just telling somebody about it the other day, actually. And But I think that was before the election of Donald Trump that we talked, like I, I, as, so, I, as I recall, I think. Or maybe it was I I'm trying to th- think. I think it was. I, maybe it I, was after. OK, maybe it was uh, after. But I'm thinking it's been OK. It's year one. Right. Uh-huh. Like of, of the Trump presidency and everybody's, I mean, it just, it is feel, it does feel, I think for a lot of people like this, some of this activities like feels like a social, like traumatizing, right? Like how is someone who's an academic and feminist historian? I mean, how, like, how is your, is your work? Do you notice impact in your work in life? Um, from the, this kind of shift in public life under the Trump administration? Well, there are a few things that are um, more sort of immediate. You know, a lot of the, the, like the proposed tax plan, which is truly horrendous in so many ways, it's hard to know where to start. But one of the things that they're, <laughs> you know, so where do you, um, but one of the things they're, they're trying to do is to tax um, tuition waivers, which are a huge benefit, first of all, to graduate students. So most graduate students can afford to go to graduate school because the tuition is waived. And that's a, in a way you can think of it as a kind of accounting mechanism, but it's a way that recognizes that there are certain costs that come along with educating that student, with training the student, but that, you know, that we're not going to ask that student to pay for it. The current proposal would require that graduate students pay taxes on that. So from whatever stipend you get, which is, you know, which is like $20,000, $25,000, maybe depending on what field you're in, you'd have to then pay taxes, not only on your stipend, but on the tuition benefit as if it were cash into your bank account. And, and similarly, a lot of universities um, provide a, a, a tuition waiver benefit to faculty and staff. And for staff in particular, it's a really, you know, a lot of, I I was, I was reading something recently about the ways in which um, faculty and staff in a lot of places effectively subsidize education because staff positions are often very poorly paid in these places. But what they get are, are benefits, they get insurance benefits and return benefits, of course. But in particular, the really, the plum benefit for a lot of the, you know, administrative and janitorial and, and, and cafeteria staff is that they get tuition benefits for their children right right it's like it's like being a civil servant sometimes you forego yeah. a higher paying job for you, right. early retirement a guaranteed well it used to be anyway, a guaranteed pension until <laughs> you know until people play <laughs> gig, like gig, you know the big short stuff and then and let's blame yeah. the let's blame the public sector <laughs> workers like, not right. to, yeah right. we gamble their pensions but but yeah, yeah you should write and people make life decisions but you're messing with strategic decisions people have made to invest in yeah. their families Right. I would say the other thing that's really struck me, it struck me, as you know, I'm currently living in France for the year. And it's it's been notable to me to be in a climate where there's there isn't like in the United States right now, there is an open, aggressive hostility against intellectuals and academics and universities. And there's just a sense that you know, universities are these kind of dens of iniquity or something. They're, they're these places where nothing useful is happening and where um, it's just, you know, a lot of irrelevant debates are happening about trigger warnings and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just there's a kind of anger about it that's really striking. And so it's been interesting to be in this different. I was at a at a um, the other day I was at this, uh, you know, so so here's a, this is a country where public intellectuals are more of a thing, right? And so I went to this public event and it was at a, a local, like a bar basically, um, but this kind of big, you know, huge room. And it was three pretty prominent legal scholars debating the French labor code, the reforms to the French labor code and what they should look like. And the room was packed. I mean, it was packed to the rafters. And clearly some of these people had just come from straight from some like blue or pink collar job, right? And it was really noticeable that there was an engagement with these ideas as something that was relevant to their lives rather than something that should be kind of packed away and 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 ignored as irrelevant to them. And and so that, I mean, listen, I don't, I, 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 this wasn't an overnight change with Trump, but the the turn against um, 
universities as places where useful knowledge is produced and meaningful debates happen has been really, really striking. So that I, I think, you know, and I think it's, it's not just the people who deny climate change or the flat earthers or whatever. It's like, there's, you know, it's a, a much broader swath of humanity who sees, um, universities as really the, the enemy. And I, that, um, that's been, been really shocking. I, I guess the other way in which it's, it's changed, um, academia bit is just that it's been very distracting. I, th- I think that people feel like there's all, all of these, you know, that research funding is threatened, you know, certainly in, in areas like um, epidemiology and and any kind of environmental sciences, that kind of research is threatened. A lot of institutes, so um, the the kind of sister university to, to where I'm is the University of North Carolina and the University of North Carolina system, they shut down programs that had, that didn't even take state funding. They just shut them down. One was a, a program that had to do with studying poverty. One was one that was about studying biodiversity. And one was one that was about studying civic engagement. And I think it's not, so this is a Republican, a, a very right-leaning Republican legislature, um, a kind of Trump before Trumpism, um, you know, but like a, a sort of a very similar set of objectives. And um, that kind of thing, it's really, so So these programs are just getting slammed and, and having a very difficult time making plans going forward because you can't really know if any funding is going to be there, if any of your students will be able to get funding. Mm-hmm. And that sort of stuff, I, I, you know, I guess I part of his wishes like, can we go back to, you know, it wasn't, nobody was rolling in it, but at least things were stable and we kind of knew, you know, we could plan for things and get back to the business of doing research and teaching, you know? Yeah. It, yeah. It strikes me. I've been talking about this with several people lately. That I, I feel like we're moving almost in this. And again, this is speaking very broadly, it's overgeneralizing, but, but I think that we're moving at the same time, we're becoming less ideological and more tribal. And by that, I think, I mean, like you see like, Democrats, right, didn't really have a too negative opinion of Russia before the Trump thing. Now, Democrats, Russia's the big problem. <laughs> Republicans love Russia. You look at you look at the NFL, right? General pollings, Republicans like the NFL more than Democrats generally. Right. I mean, of course, right. they're uh, right. fans of it, but it switched because of the take a knee. Now, Democrats are embracing the NFL. Now, and then you, you look at evangelicals before Trump got the nomination. It was like 70 percent said that uh, the president has to have a good spiritual foundation to be a good. Right. When, once Trump got the nominee, it went 70 percent the other way. Like a president doesn't. I mean, so you just right. it, it's almost like two divorces. We're cool with that. Right, exactly. Yeah. Three, three, all these. Yeah. And so it almost seems like that it, 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 this is what I'm saying. It's like, it almost seems less ideological and just, uh, uh, you know, like I just talked at David French on the podcast when I interviewed recently, he said that somebody said to him in a radio interview recently, French, when are you just going to put on the red Jersey and play ball? Because he was an original and ever, and it's, you know, I mean, that's, that's the tribalism yeah. without, not that, I mean, things can be ideology. You can use that as a good term, a bad term, whatever. We could talk about uh-huh. the nuance of the term, but you see, you know, like, it's almost just like the ideas are just what we'll, we'll choose our team and who's the opposition and the ideas will follow. Yeah. I'm really curious to see what happens in Alabama. Yeah, me too. Um, I mean, I just, you know, and, and part of it is that there's a, there's this partisanship for sure, but then it's muddied by the fact that, Trump, I mean, now he's come out in favor of more, but before he hadn't. And, you know, what is that? So in addition to the kind of craziness surrounding the, I mean, the more nomination was crazy before all these allegations came out. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, how do you get removed from the Supreme Court because you won't uphold the rule of law and then get back on the Supreme Court? Again? Right, like, right. like the, guy, the guy doesn't believe in the rule of law. I mean, I know. and he wants to be a lawmaker. I mean, that's yeah. what strikes me. It's just, this is yeah. the baseline, you know, kind of thing we got to agree on. Yeah. And I, you know, I wonder if, um, I mean, I, I share your concerns about tribal. I actually was thinking about this because I was talking with somebody over at dinner last night about the fact that um, French schools are not religious. All public schools, you know, it's, it's sort of like the United States, um, but there's, but public schools are much more, you know, like people are, are, it's, it's a really, as you, as you probably know, quite controversially, there's a lot of, um, insistence on non express, not expressing religious views in any uh, public way. Yeah, you, is- you have more freedom. If you're a Muslim, you have more freedom of religion in England where there's an established church than you right. do in France, which is France. secular, That's which right. is an interesting, th- right. <laughs> interesting reality. And arguably even the United States where our president is tweeting, 
anti-Islamic but at least um, we can say Merry Christmas again I mean that's <laughs> that's the fascinating thing who the hell doesn't say Merry Christmas I hear it all the time when did that like the war on Christmas that's the, one of those where's this war on Christmas I've never seen it fought in my, in my like, really there's a war on Christmas <laughs> no I know I mean it's anyway it's crazy but I I do wonder if part of I mean like, I've been trying to think of what the roots of this you know, what you call tribalism or what this kind of how, how we've gotten so segmented. And I think I do think that part of it is, you know, this sort of wokeness. I think I, I think that the one of the interesting things is that's happened is that the recognition of the effects of white supremacy and of racist violence have also led to various forms of distrust across racial lines, which, you know, I that's that's going to be hard to address. I mean, it's because um, it has very real foundations. Right. Um, so I. I, I, I'm not sure that we're going to get to something. Part of it is that I think that we've, we're seeing the limits of universalism in a lot of ways. There's a, um, you know, he, here in France, it's, again, it's really striking because I, I, I came from North Carolina and I landed here. And the idea of universalism as a French attribute is really, it's just part of the popular culture. It's, it's, um, they're, they're less overtly nationalistic here. But the discourses of that seem very much to be linked to so the discourses of liberty, fraternity, and equality, for example, you just hear it in everyday speech in ways that kind of catch me off guard. Um, I think in the United States, there's been a lot more recognition of the limitations of universalism or the ways in which universalism is often standing in for whoever happens to be in power as the the unmarked norm and everybody else is somehow marked, right? And and so the question is how is is there a way that we then can like work with both of those those ideas in our head at once that that tribalism can be um you know possibly even dangerous but certainly fragmenting and counterproductive in in terms of making any real social change uh, social change that reaches beyond your tribe right um and on the other hand that universalism isn't the the right answer either yeah no i think that i think that's right i mean something about it's interesting. I was I, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal by a conservative Jewish scholar. He was he's he works out of Israel, but he's actually might come on the podcast. But he 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 talked he's talked about how Trump didn't create the fracture in the Republican Party. He exposed what was there, and and he talked about the sort of fusion with William Buckley and everything, getting together uh -huh. these neocons who are more the universalists, right? He said this, yeah. there's one kind of right. classical liberal enlightenment enlightenment kind of sensibility, and there's this other Anglo conservative one. That is a little more particularist and takes cultural differences a little more seriously. And, and, and it's less, you know, and he's talking about how the, the instability of this and, and, and how, um, the one is sort of that there's a real divergence even within the Republican party. And it goes back to a different kind of enlightenment, sort of a Hobbes <laughs> kind of a Hobbesian sort of, uh, locking kind of thing versus another kind of framework on the other. And, but I do think, yeah, well, can't we walk and chew gum at the same time? Can't we appreciate? <laughs> Like I said, there, there there are certain kinds of universal values around equality uh, and freedom and dignity, but that these things will have different instantiations and approximations depending on how they take root. You know that there are real right. differences. Yeah, I mean that just seems to me that the sort of universal in particular, just, yeah, they can exist in tension, right? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think the Republicans kind of made their bed with Reagan, right? And and the decision to that that, that I think a lot of these sort of Neocon, but also like pro-business Republicans who decided they're going to put th those ideas to the side in order to make a, a common cause with these evangelicals is is part of what ends up. And what's kind of weird is that the coalition still in any way holds together. It's held together this long. Um, and not to mention they can hold it together under the current under its current pressures. Well, it's interesting, too, because uh, I'm sounding like a real like advocate for, for William Crystal, but he has this podcast called Conversations, which is fantastic. And he was not like being a cable news guy. He's uh -huh. actually just kind of talking. And, you know, it's really some interesting. Yeah. And he has a guests from all across the spectrum, but he had Ron Bernstein, the political journalist, and Bernstein uh -huh. said that basically what happened, Barack Obama was the first person to win, um, what losing a, a bigger share, he lost the biggest share of the white, um, non-college educated vote. He's like, but he uh -huh. didn't bottom out on it. And he got uh -huh. so much of the white educated vote, right? And, and, right. and minorities, and, 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 and like, and he said, you know, Hillary Clinton couldn't quite hold that coalition together the same way. Like she mm -hmm. bottomed out on some of those people. Mm -hmm. She got a lot of the people. She got a lot of, of the coalition. Turnout was a little down though. And, and, and 
bottomed out more on white non-college educated voters. And so he, he was saying, actually, like, well, what do we do here now? You have to, the Sanders strategy to go for the working class or the try to re replicate Barack Obama's electoral strategy. He said, I, I'm just saying as journalists, I think you got a better shot with the latter because Trump right now has a stranglehold on mm-hmm. that and, and you're not going to get enough of them away. Or, but as, as long as you don't, as long as you don't bottom out on them, get some more of them, but get the coalition, um, get everybody else in the thing that he thinks in the short term. And that's, it looks like that's kind of what happened in like Virginia. Um, mm-hmm. that, 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 you know, that that's, and I mean, I don't know if that's cynical or dark and it actually reinforces some of the tribalism, but it's an, it's an interesting phenomenon. Right? And then all this self sorting, right? I mean, the, the even right. if you get rid of the gerrymandering problem, all the self sorting, it, it's just, we're still going to have real weird imbalanced districts. Um, right. even if you get rid of the uh, corrupt gerrymandering, there's still going to be this kind of self sorting, you know, imbalanced kind of thing. Yeah. I got to say, I mean, I, this is just because I, I usually live in North Carolina where the, where the redistricting has been, so cynical. I mean, it's really so. I I agree with the self sorting problem, but but we could go a long way toward mitigating that without before we get to what we have now, which is just. I mean, you know, North Carolina and Texas and these places where they've just they've just gerrymandered these states and then into their lives, and it's yeah yeah. I mean, in Wisconsin, they got sixty six or sixty eight out of ninety seats with forty eight percent of the vote, and they drew the yeah. district. And that was funny in the Supreme Court when they're like, "Well, this social science, you know, of course, this social science right. says, uh, you know, it does work." That's they, they hired those people to figure out how to make the districts. That's right. the proof right. that it works. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's so. But what's interesting is that what I mean. I, it's funny because I, I see what you mean by the partisanship and that the kind of like people's party loyalties right now are are interesting. But they're accompanied by a, so the Democratic Party is really fragmented, and it seems like what we're seeing is emerging. Two parties, but one of which is like not necessarily constellated around these parties. I say there's people who are adamantly populist, and then there's still a kind of neoliberal party. And, and so it seems like those are the two camp. In other words, you could create two totally new parties that would attract, you know, the, the neoliberals to one pole and the populist to another pole. And there's not much occupying the middle. Or I'm not sure if the middle is between those two, but occupying another space, maybe let me say it that way. Um, that seems to be the kind of places that people are getting pulled to. And what would that space look like, do you think? The space that wouldn't that'd be neither populist nor, yeah, nor neoliberal. Or, yeah. I mean, I think that what, a lot of what's t- attracting people to what's being dubbed populist. So if you, so the kind of Bernie Sanders type and, and, and in some ways to Trump, right? Is this idea of it, it, it seems, okay, I'm thinking off the cuff here. I'm really like, you thought I was out of my element when I was talking about, <laughs> about sex panic. Now I'm really, but, but so doctor, I can give you some political sciences, doctor, but, but it, what it seems to me is that, um, it's coming in part of a place of nostalgia of a moment when like you could have a decent blue collar job and it would guarantee you a dignified living and a dignified retirement. And you could occasionally take vacations with your family and you didn't have to constantly worry that you're about to lose that job. And so there was a kind of, in part, it was a sort of combination of having a reasonable functioning social welfare system, which we've really gutted, and having more reasonable employment practices and probably most importantly, strong labor unions, right? And so that that created a, a sort of working middle class, right? That, that had us. And, and, the, and the unions, right, also, like, I mean, had a, a social, like, it was a part, civic, cohesive bonds. Yeah. I mean, there's these studies that for white, for whites, um, whether or not they go to church or synagogue has a mm-hmm. huge impact on sort of their, whether they see things as optimistic or pessimistic or, and on income. And some of that, mm-hmm. some of the theory is just that it's just social cohesion. Like right. the churches, unions, they, they, they build social bonds, yeah. you know, and, and, right. and keep from isolation and loneliness and these things that, 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 you know, as, and this is where you see like, you know, addiction epidemics and things, you know, these, the loss of human connection. Um, yeah. 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 And I think I think not just the loss of human. I mean, I think unions in particular give their membership. First of all, just some really basic structural supports, like you know, right, yeah, you pensions. can negotiate, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. negotiating power. Um, they also, it, I think, it means that people feel much more part of the polity. They're much more so. I mean, again, I'm living here. It's really striking. One of the things that's really striking to me it, living in France. So I, I live in Nantes, which is like. It's like the Seattle or something or Portland of, of France is in the Northwest. And it has this socialist mayor who has uh, created this whole inf- cycling infrastructure so that people can commute by bicycle and, you know, all that stuff. So it's very progressive. And but but the other thing you notice is that social spaces are not as segregated by class, that there's a lot more 
presence of labor and labor unions in public conversation and debate. It's just considered something that that is a mainstream part of of both politics and culture in a way that it hasn't been for they haven't been for a while in the United States. That I think would be transformative. So so I think there could be a space that would be more occupied by that, right? That wouldn't be I mean I, I don't want to I, I I'm not sure I want to kind of just pigeonhole Sanders is a populist, but I think a lot of what was appealing about him as well as appealing about Trump was that you could have a dignified working class life, right? And that your, you know, your kids could be educated and maybe have more opportunities than you did. And all of that stuff that, that, you know, there's a kind of, and you can have a conversation about, is that just nostalgia based on a world that never really existed? But I think, you know, it, there, there's enough real in there, particularly if you think about the kind of 50s and 60s when there was a more solid, you know, all, all kinds of other problems with Jim Crow and sexism. And I so don't get me like my nostalgia for that is limited. But 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 in terms of the structural elements, I think that was really important. Yeah, it's so interesting too. I remember Bill Maher remarking a couple of years ago at the 2012 Republican convention. He's like, gosh, I've never seen it. They didn't even talk about the military. All it was was about job creators and cap. Yeah. And it was like, you're just like you just suck if you get a salary you're you know you're a, you're a, you're a bottom feeder <laughs> like right. some kind of thing and the, the job it's just I mean, it's so interesting too because how much of of the one percent really is job creating because of the way money and capital right. works i mean these all yeah so that's there there you go so trump has impacted your life a lot like it has everybody else's <laughs> i know but i mean you know i consider myself extremely fortunate because i i have a job with some security i i really do feel for you know, much of our community, which doesn't, that's, that's, it's, and I, in particular, um, the place where I think we're seeing it most starkly now is with immigrants. I think that anybody here who, in the United States, who, you know, doesn't have legal documentation or who is, has family, I mean, even people who do, they often have family. I have a, a graduate student who actually, um, is a citizen because her mother was pregnant with her when she when she crossed into the United States. But she has family members who don't have documentation. Most of her church doesn't have documentation. I mean, I think, and and it's really stressful even for the people who have legal presence in the United States. That every day is just you know more and and it's all grounded in this fiction that the U.S. economy would function without this. Right, right. That's that's the word. That the thing is, it's the worst issue for blaming the victim because yeah. because if we really wanted to stop this we just say okay if you if you're caught hiring undocumented people your company you know you go to jail your company gets uh, your assets are That's frozen fine, there, right. there would be no incentive but we incentivize it and because then if we catch you you know round people up and just get new people in and it, it's yeah i mean it's that to me is just insane um our immigration yeah. policy is just crazy but uh yeah as, as a feminist historian how do you think do, do, would, i mean uh Future prediction is always ambiguous, right? But but your sort of academic historian, yeah, your academic historian, Crystal Ball, like, how do you think that that this era of political and public life is going to shape feminism going forward? Do you see? Do you see? Do you see? Oh. Do you see that taking root at all? In particular ways now, I'm terrible. I, I really am terrible about the going forward, but I really focus on the past. But I mean, I, I think the part of what we're seeing is a lot more diverse. That is to say, um, you know, if if one of the errors of 2016 was that people got too invested in Hillary as this iconic figure, Hillary Clinton as this iconic figure, I think the one happy outcome of these elections is we see much more diverse array of people running for public office and, you know, trying to reshape politics. I think there's a a, a growing recognition that the conservatives were very effective at taking over local and state governments and that that needs to be reversed. And so I think a lot of, and that's not going to help for, in terms of, of a lot of issues that are important to feminists, things like, you know, reproductive rights and so forth, that's not necessarily going to help. But, but what we recognize now is it's important because if you have a state government that's going to ban or, or make it nearly impossible, for example, to have family planning clinics, that has real effects. And so it's not just a, a federal issue. And and I think that that's where a lot of the of the fights are happening or a lot of the, the and, and it's it's been all for the good. I, you know, the the stuff that happened in Virginia. I mean, 
you know, we can talk about like nitpick it around the edges around who, who could or couldn't have been a better candidate. But the fact is we're getting just much more diverse candidate pools. We had a recently had a, uh, municipal elections in, in Durham, North Carolina. And, you know, it's like all of these mostly African American women, straight and gay. I mean, it's just like, it's a really diverse, um, pool of people that, that are, I think, deciding to run for public office and, and deciding to that's, that's the place to try to make change. That's exciting. It's really interesting. I was listening to this millennial pollster. Um, she wrote a book called The Selfie Vote or something, and she's quite quite good pollster. And um, she was saying that for women she talked to, the boomer generation, even if they didn't like Hillary Clinton, they're sort of like, wow, but I would really like to see a female president, even if she's yeah. not my favorite. Fem-. Whereas she, millennials didn't, she didn't get a pass at all for that. Like they were kind of like, if I don't like Hillary Clinton, I'll vote for Bernie Sanders because I'm going to see, right. I'm going to see a female president in my lifetime. It doesn't have to be this one. Like there, there's this sense right. that, that, that because of that diverse pool that, that there's a real different kind of approach yeah. to someone like Hillary Clinton. I mean, I do think, you know, it's not surprising that a lot of women who were, you know, have been feminists for half a century and have been like shocked election after election that we still can't get a, a woman in the White House feel like that's, you know, it's just it's it's a hurdle that's that needs to be cleared before too long. And I, I'm I'm less invested in that as a, you know, specific. There's a lot of other metrics that are more important to me about women's status than is there a woman in the White House. But it wouldn't hurt. I mean, you know, I don't think that it's, it seems like it's something that, that mm-hmm. we're one of the few OECD countries that's never had a woman in a position of power. And it like seems that. like we should only have women in Congress for at least like four years. Just a clean <laughs> thing. To, like figure out the sexual harassment. Yeah, just stuff. clean that up. Just clean that up for four <laughs> years. Just four years. Like all family candidates, just for like two, two Congresses. So, like just so it kind of shakes out. Although, and you can, you can test the theory of that novel and see if it's... Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> right, if you have all these pages, all these uh, sexual men <laughs> that are being harassed in case. Exactly. Uh, Jocelyn, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Uh, Such and, a treat to talk to you again. And I will, talk, I will have you back again soon. Excellent. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure as always. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jocelyn for being on the podcast. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, my friends, fare thee well.